Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Wednesday night going on Thursday morning. (laughs) Apologies for that. We have a new dog and our house is disrupted, we could say, so it's all kicking off now. Three Dobermans. Are we mad? So tonight we have David Brain's story, The Crystal Spheres. If you'd be kind enough after you've listened to it, maybe drop us an email, tell us what you think, or pop over to the forums and leave your comment there. That would be great. Let's um, keep these stories coming. We've got some a little bit of music on the beginning and the end of it, and that's Cosmic Wheels. Just a little shout to John Manchester for that. The narration is by James Campanella, Jim, great friend, he emailed us and he's done a couple of, quite a few I've actually got him to do, so check out his website as well. Uvela Audio, I think it's pronounced like that, hopefully. It's this small little bit that hangs at the back of the throat. I'll put links on on the website, so check out Jim's work. He's got some free audio books over there as well, so that's certainly worthwhile. So, without further ado, it is David Brin and the Crystal Spheres. It was just lucky chance I'd been defrosted when I was. The very year that FAR Probe 9925-73-AA4 reported back that had found a good star with a shattered crystal sphere. I was one of only twelve deep spacers alive, warm at the time, so naturally I got to take part in the adventure. At first I knew nothing about it. When the fliver came... I was climbing the flanks of the Sicilian Plateau in the great valley a recent ice age had made of the Mediterranean Sea I had once known. I and five other newly awakened sleepers had come to camp and tramp through this wonder while we acclimated to the times. We were a motley assortment from various eras, though none was older than I. We had just finished a visit to the once-sunken ruins of Atlantis, and were hiking out of a forest trail under the evening glow of the ring city high overhead. In the century since I had last deep-slept, the gleaming, flexi-solid belt of habit industry around our world had grown. In the middle latitudes, night was now a pale thing. Near the equator, there was little to distinguish it from day, so glorious was the light ribbon in the sky. Not that night could ever be the same as it had been when my grandfather was a child, even if every work of man were removed. 
For ever since the twenty-second century there had been the shards, casting colors out where once there had been but galaxies and stars. No wonder no one had objected to the banishment of night from Earth's surface. Humanity out on the small bodies might have to look upon the shards, but Earth-dwellers had no particular desire to gaze out upon those unpleasant reminders. Being only a year thawed, I wasn't ready yet to even ask what century it was, let alone begin finding some passable profession for this life. Reawakened sleepers were generally given a decade or so to enjoy and explore the differences that had grown in the Earth and in the solar system before having to make any choices. This was especially true of deep spacers like me. The state, more ageless than any of its nearly immortal members, had a nostalgic affection for us strange ones, officers of a near-extinct service. When a deep spacer awakened, he was encouraged to go about the altered Terra without interference, seeking strangeness. He might even dream he was exploring another good world, where no man had ever trod, instead of breathing the same air that had been in his own lungs so many times during so many ages past. I had expected to go my rebirth trek unbothered, so it was with amazement that evening on the forest flank of Sicily that I saw a creamy-colored saw-gov fliver dropping out of a bank of lacy clouds and drift toward the campsite, where my group of time-cast wanderers had settled to doze and aimlessly gossip about the events of the day. We all stood and watched it come. The other campers looked at one another suspiciously as the fliver fell toward us. They wondered who was so important to compel the ever-polite world comps to break into our privacy, sending this teardrop down below the Palermo Heights to parklands where it didn't belong. I kept my secret feeling to myself. The thing had come from me. I knew it. Don't ask me how. A deep spacer knows things. That is all. We who have been outside the shattered shards of Saul's broken crystal sphere and have peered from the outside to see the living worlds within faraway shells, we are the ones who have pressed our faces against the glass of the candy store, staring in at what we could not have. We are the ones who know the depth of our deprivation and the joke the universe has played upon us. The billions of our fellow humans, those who have never left Saul's soft yellow kindness, need psychers even to tell of the irreparable trauma they endure. Most people drift through their lives suffering only occasional bouts of great depression, easily treated, or ended with final sleep. But we deep spacers have rattled the bars of our cage. We know our neuroses arise out of the universe's great jest. I stepped forward toward the clearing where the Saul Gov fliver was settling. It gave my campmates someone to blame for the interruption. I could feel their burning stares. The beige teardrop opened and out stepped a tall woman. She possessed a type of statuesque beauty that had not been in fashion on earth during all of my last four lives, but clearly she had never indulged in biosculpting. I admit freely that in that first instant I did not recognize her, though we had thrice been married over these slow wait years. The first thing I knew, the very first thing of all, was that she wore our uniform, 
the uniform of a service that had been mothballed, oh quaint term, thousands of years ago, silver against dark blue and eyes that matched. Alice, I breathed, after a long moment. Is it true? At last? She came forward and took my hand. She must have known how weak and tense I felt. Yes, Joshua. One of the probes has found another cracked shell. There's no mistake. It's a good star. She shook her head, saying yes with her eyes. Black ringlets framed her face, shimmering like the trail of a rocket. The probe called a Class A alert, she grinned. There are shards all around the star, shattered and glimmering, like the Oort sky of Saul. And the probe reports there's a world within, one that we can touch. I laughed aloud. I pulled her to me and we hugged. I could tell the campers behind me came from times when one did not do such things, for they muttered in consternation. When? When did the news come? We found out months ago, just after you thawed. World Comp still said we had to give you a year of wake-up, but I came the instant it was over. We've waited long enough, Joshua. Moisha Bach is taking out every deep spacer now alive. Joshua, we want you to come. We need you. Our expedition leaves in three days. Will you join us? She need not have asked. We embraced again, and this time... I had to blink back tears. Of recent weeks, as I wandered, I had wondered what profession I would pursue in this life. But joy of joys, it never occurred to me that I would be a deep spacer again. I would wear the uniform once more and fast travel to the stars. The project was under a total news blackout. The Gov psychists were of the opinion that the race could not stand another disappointment. They feared an epidemic of Great Depression, and a few of them even tried to stop us from mounting the expedition. Fortunately, the world comps remembered their ancient promise. We deep spacers long ago agreed to stop exploring and raising people's hopes with our efforts. In return, the billion robot far probes were sent out, and we would be allowed to go investigate any report they sent back of a cracked shell. By the time Alice and I arrived at Sharon, the others had almost finished recommissioning the ship we were to take out. I had hoped we would be using the Robert Rogers or Ponce de Leon, two ships I had once commanded. But they had chosen instead to use the old Pelinor. She would be big enough for the purposes we had in mind, without being unwieldy. Saul Gov tugs were loading aboard 10,000 corpse-sickles, even as the shuttle carrying Alice and me passed Pluto and began rendezvous maneuvers. Out here, 10% of the way to the edge, the shards glimmered with a bright sheen of indescribable colors. I let Alice do the piloting and stared out at the glowing fragments of Saul's shattered crystal sphere. When my grandfather was a boy, Sharon had been a similar site of activity. Thousands of excited men and women had clustered around an asteroid ship half the size of the little moon itself, loaded aboard a virtual ark of hopeful would-be colonists, their animals, and their goods. Those early explorers knew they would never see their final destination. They were not sad. They suffered from no Great Depression. Those people launched forth in their so primitive first starship, full of hope 
for their great-grandchildren, and for the world their sensitive telescopes had proved circled, green and pleasant, around the star Tau Ceti. Ten thousand weight years later, I looked out at the mammoth yards of Charon as we passed overhead. Rank on serried rank of starships lay berthed below. Over the millennia, thousands had been built, from generation ships and Hiberna barges to ram skippers and great strutted wormhole divers. They all lay below, every one except for the few that had been destroyed in accidents or whose crews killed themselves in despair. They had all come back to Charon, failures. I looked at the most ancient hulks, the generation ships, and thought about that day of my grandfather's youth when the seeker cruised blithely over the edge and collided at one percent of light speed with the inner face of Sal's crystal sphere. They never knew what hit them, that first crew. They had begun to pass through the outermost shoals of the solar system, the Oort cloud, where billions of comets drifted like puffs of snow in the sun's weakened grasp. Seeker's instruments sought through the sparse cloud, touching isolated drifting balls of ice. The would-be colonists planned to keep busy doing science throughout the long passage, among the questions they wanted to solve on their way was the mystery of the comet's mass. Why was it, astronomers had asked for centuries, that virtually all of these icy bodies were the same size, about a mile across? Seeker's instruments plowed for knowledge. Little did her pilots know she would reap the joke of the gods. When she collided with the crystal sphere, it bowed outward with her over a span of light minutes. Seeker had time for a frantic laser cast back to Earth. They only knew that something strange was happening. Something had begun tearing them apart, even as the fabric of space itself seemed to rend. Then the crystal sphere shattered. And where there had once been ten billion comets, now there were ten quadrillion. Nobody ever found the wreckage of Seeker. Perhaps she was vaporized. Almost half the human race died in the battle against the comets, and by the time the planets were safe again, centuries later, Seeker was long gone. We never did find out how, by what accident, she managed to crack the shell. There are still those who contend that it was the crew's ignorance that crystal spheres even existed that enabled them to achieve what has forever since seemed so impossible. Now the shards illuminate the sky. Saul shines within a halo of light reflected by ten quadrillion comets, the mark of the only good star accessible to man. We're coming in, Alice told me. I sat up in my seat and watched her nimble hands dance across the panel. Then Pelinor hove into view. The great globe shone dully in the light from the shards. Already the nimbus of her drives caused the space around her to shimmer. The Saul-Gov tugs had finished loading the colonists aboard and were departing. The ten thousand corpsicles would require little tending during our mission, so we dozen deep spacers would be free to explore. But if the good star did indeed shine onto an accessible good world, we would awaken the men and women from frozen sleep and deliver them to their new home. 
No doubt the world comps well chose those sleepers to be potential colonists. Still, we were under orders that none of them should be awakened unless a colony was possible. Perhaps this news would turn out to be just another disappointment, in which case the corpsicles were never to know that they had been on a journey 20,000 parsecs and back. Let's dock, I said eagerly. I want to get going. Alice smiled. Always the impatient one. The deep spacer is deep spacer. Give it a day or two, Joshua. We'll be winging out of the nest soon enough. There was no point in reminding her that I had been late waiting longer than she. Indeed, longer than nearly every other human left alive. I kept my restlessness within and listened in my head to the music of the spheres. In my time, there were four ways known to cheat Einstein and two ways to flat-out fool him. On our way out, Pelinor used all of them. Our route was circuitous, from wormhole to quantum point to collapsars. By the time we arrived, I wondered how the deep space probe had ever gotten so far, let alone back with its news. The find was in the nearby minor galaxy Skelptor. It took us twelve years' ship time to get there. On the way, we passed close to at least 200 good stars, glowing hot yellow, stable, and solitary. In every case, there were signs of planets circling round. Several times, we swept by close enough to catch glimpses in our super scopes of bright blue water worlds, circling invitingly like temptresses, forever out of reach. In the old days, we would have mapped these places excitedly standing off just outside of the danger zone, studying the Earth-like worlds with our instruments. We would have charted them carefully, against the day when mankind finally learned how to do on purpose what Seeker had accomplished in ignorance. Once we did stop, and lingered two light hours out from a certain good star, just outside of its crystal sphere, perhaps we were foolish to come so close, but we couldn't help it for there were modulated radio waves coming from the water world within. It was only the fourth time technological civilization had been found. We spent an excited year setting up robot watchers and recorders to study the phenomenon. We did not bother trying to communicate. We knew by now what would happen. Any probe we sent in would collide with the crystal sphere around this good star. It would be crushed ice precipitating upon it from all directions until it was destroyed, and under megatons of water, a newborn comet. Any focused beams we cast inward would cause a similar reaction, creating a reflecting mirror that blocked all efforts to communicate with the locals. Still, we could listen to their traffic. The crystal sphere was a one-way barrier to modulated light and radio, and intelligence of any form but it let the noise the locals made escape. In this case, we soon concluded that it was another hive race. The creatures had no interest in or even conception of space travel. Disappointed, we left our watchers in place and hurried on. Our target was obvious as soon as we arrived within a few light weeks of the goal. Our excitement rose as we found that the probe had not lied. It was a good star, stable, old, companionless. Its friendly yellow glow diffracted through a pale, shimmering aura of ten quadrillion snowflakes. Its shattered crystal sphere.
There's a complete suite of planets, announced Yen Ming, our cosmophysicist. His hands groped about in his Hollis tank, touching in its murk what the ship's instruments were able to decipher from this distance. I can feel three gas giants, about two million small bodies, and... He made us wait while he felt carefully to make sure. And three little worlds, we cheered. With numbers like those, odds were that at least one of the rocky planets circled within the life zone. Let me see. There's one little world here that... Yen pulled his hand from the tank. He popped a finger into his mouth and tasted for a moment, rolling his eyes like a connoisseur savoring fine wine. Water, he smacked thoughtfully. We all sighed happily. Yes, plenty of water. I can taste life, too. Standard adenine-based carbo-life. Hmm. In fact, it's chlorophyllic and left-handed. In the excited, happy babble that followed, Moisha Bach, our captain, had to shout to be heard. All right, people, look. It's clear none of us are going to get any sleep soon. Life science Taiga. Have you prepared a list of corpsicles to thaw, in case we found a good world? Alice drew the list from her pocket. Ready, Moisha. I have biologists, technicians, planetologists, crystallographers. You'd better awaken a few archaeologists and contactors, Yen added dryly. We turned and saw that his hands were back in the Hollis tank. His face bore a dreamy expression. It took our civilization 3,000 years to herd our asteroids about into optimum orbits for space colonies. But compared with this system, we're amateurs. Every small body orbiting this star has been transformed. They march around like ancient soldiers on a drill field. I have never seen engineering on this scale. Moisha's eyes flicked to me. As executive officer, it would be my job to fight for the ship if Pelinor found herself in trouble, and to destroy her if capture were inevitable. Long ago we had reached one conclusion. If good stars without crystal spheres were rare, and dreamt of by a frustrated mankind, the same might hold for some other star-traveling race. If some other race had managed to break out of its shell and now wandered about like us, in search of another open good star, what would such a race think upon detecting our ship? I know what we would think. We would think that the intruder had come from somewhere, an open good star. My job was to make sure nobody ever followed Pelinor back to Earth. I nodded to my assistant, Yoko Murakami, who followed me to the arms globe. We unfolded the firing panel and waited while Moisha ordered Pelinor piloted cautiously closer. Yoko looked at the panel dubiously. She obviously doubted the efficacy of even a mega-terawatt laser against technology of the scale described by Yen. I shrugged. We would soon find out. My duty was done the moment I flicked the arming switch and took hold of our dead man auto-destruct. In the hours that passed, I watched developments carefully but could not help deep remembering. Back in the days before starships, before Seeker broke Saul's eggshell and precipitated the two-century comet war, mankind had awakened to a quandary that caused the thinkers of those early days many sleepless nights. As telescopes improved, as biologists began to understand, and even tailor-made life 
more and more people began to look up at the sky and ask, Where the hell is everybody? The great lunar base cameras tracked planets around nearby yellow suns. There were telltale traces of life, even in those faint 21st century spectra. Philosophers cast nervous calculations to show that the galaxies must teem with living worlds. And as they prepared our first starships, the deep thinkers began to wonder. If travel between the stars was as easy as it appeared to be, why hadn't the fertile stars already been settled by somebody else? After all, we were getting ready to head out and colonize. By even modest estimates of expansion rates, we seemed sure to fill the entire galaxy with human settlements within a few million years. So why hadn't this already happened? Why was there no sign of traffic among the stars? Why had the expected radio network of communication never been detected? Even more puzzling, why was there absolutely no evidence that Earth had ever been colonized in the past? We were by then quite certain that our world had never hosted visitors from other worlds. For one thing, there was the history of the pre-Cambrian to consider. Before the age of reptiles, before fish or trilobites or even amoebae, there was on Earth a two-billion-year epoch in which the only life forms were crude, single-celled organisms without nuclei, the prokaryotes, struggling slowly to invent the basic structure of life. No alien colonists ever came to Earth during all that time. We knew that for certain. For if they had, the very garbage they buried would have changed the history of life on our planet. A single leaky latrine would have filled the oceans with superior life forms that would have overwhelmed our crude little ancestors. Two billion years without being colonized, and then the silent emptiness of the radio ways. The philosophers of the 21st century called it the Great Silence. They hoped the starships would find the answer. Then the very first ship, Seeker, somehow smashed the crystal sphere that we hadn't even known existed and inadvertently explained the mystery for us. During the ensuing Comet War, we had little time for philosophical musings. I was born into that battle and spent my first hundred years in harsh, screaming little ships, blasting and hurting ice balls that left alone would have fallen upon and crushed our fragile worlds. We might have let Earth fall then. After all, more than half of humanity by then lived in space colonies, which could be protected easier than any sitting duck planet. That might have been logical, but mankind went a little crazy when Earth Mother was threatened. Belters herded cities of millions into the paths of hurtling ice balls, just to save a heavy world they had only known from books and a faint blue twinkle in the blackness. The psychist took a long time to understand why. At the time, it seemed like some sort of divine madness. Finally, the war was won. The comets were tamed, and we started looking outward again. New starships were built, better than before. I had to wait for a berth on the twelfth ship, and the wait saved my life. The first seven ships were lost. Just as they beamed back their jubilant reports, spiraling closer to the beautiful green worlds they had found, they plowed into unseen crystal spheres and were destroyed. 
and unlike Seeker, they did not accomplish anything by dying. The crystal spheres remained after the ships had been ice-crushed into comets. We had all had such hopes, though those who remembered Seeker had worried quietly. Humanity seemed about to breathe free at last. We were going to spread our eggs to other baskets and be safe for the first time. No more would we have to fear overpopulation, crowding, or stagnation. And all at once the hopes were dashed, dashed against those unseen deadly spheres. It took centuries even to learn how to detect the death zones. How, we asked, how could the universe be so perverse? Was it all some great practical joke? What were these monstrous barriers that defied all the physics we knew and kept us away from the beautiful little worlds we so desired? For three centuries, humanity went a little crazy. I missed the worst years of the Great Depression. I was with a group trying to study the sphere around Tau Ceti. By the time I got back, some degree of order had been restored. But I came back to a solar system that had clearly lost a piece of its heart. It was a long time before I heard true laughter again, on Earth or on her small bodies. I, too, went to bed and pulled the covers over my head for a couple of hundred years. The entire crew breathed a relief sigh when Captain Bach ordered me to put the safeties back on. I finally let go of my dead man's switch and got up. The tension seeped away into a chain of shivers and Alice had to hold me until I could stand again on my own. Moisha had ordered the stand-down because the good sun's system was empty. To be accurate, the system teemed with life, but none of it was intelligent. The greater asteroids held marvelous, self-sustaining ecosystems, absorbing sunlight under great windows. Twenty moons sheltered huge forests beneath tremendous domes. But there was no traffic, no radio or light messages. Yen's detectors revealed no machine activity, nor the thought touch of analytical beings. It felt eerie to poke our way through those civilized lanes in the small body ways, for so long had we only performed such maneuvers in the well-known spaces of Sol system. During those first centuries after the Crystal Crisis, some men and women still thought it would be possible to live among the stars, belters mostly. They claimed aloud that planets were nasty, heavy places anyway, so who needed them? They went out to the bad stars, red giants and tiny red dwarves, tight binaries and unstable suns. The bad stars were protected by no crystal spheres. The would-be colonists found drifting clots of matter near those stars and attempted to set up small-body cities as they had at home. Every one of the attempts failed within a few generations. The colonists simply lost interest in procreation. The psychers finally decided the cause was related to the divine madness that had enabled us to win the Comet War. Simply put, men could live on asteroids, but they needed to know that there was a blue world nearby to see it in their sky. It's a flaw in our character, no doubt, but we cannot go out and live in space all alone. We have to have water worlds 
if the universe is ever to be ours. This system's water world we named Quest, after the beast so long sought by King Pelinor, our ship's namesake. It shone blue and brown under a clean white swaddling of clouds. For hours we circled above it and simply cried. Alice awakened ten corpse sickles, prominent scientists who the world comps had promised would not fall apart on the reawakening of hope. We watched them take their turn at the viewport, joy tears streaming down their faces, and we joined them to weep freely once again. Pelinor was hardly up to the task of exploring this system by herself. We spent a year recovering and modifying several of the ancient ships we found drifting over the planet, so that teams could spread out investigating every corner of this system. By our second anniversary, a hundred biologists were quick scampering over the surface of Quest. They gene-scanned the local flora and fauna excitedly, and already were modifying earth plants to fit into the ecosystem without causing an imbalance. Soon they would start on animals from our gene tanks. The engineers exploring the small bodies excitedly declared that they could get half the life machines left behind by the prior race to work. There was room for a billion colonists out there, straight from the start. But the archaeologists were the ones whose report we awaited most anxiously. In between my ferrying runs, they were the ones I helped. I joined them in the dusty ruins of Old City, at the edge of Long Valley, putting together piles of artifacts to be catalogued and slowly analyzed. We learned that the old inhabitants had called themselves the Nataral. They were about as similar to us as we might have expected. Bipedal, nine-figured, weird-looking. Still, one got used to their faces after staring at their statues and pictures long enough. After a while, I even began to perceive subtle facial cues and delicate, sensitive nuances of expression. When the language was cracked, we learned their race name and some of their story. Unlike the other alien intelligences we had observed from afar, the Natural were individuals and explorers. They, too, had spread into their planetary system after a world-bound history fully as colorful and good-bad as ours. Like us, they had two conflicting dreams. They longed for the stars, for room to grow, and they also longed for other faces, for neighbors. By the time they built a starship, their first, they had given up the idea on neighbors. There was no sign anybody had ever visited their world. They had heard nothing but silence from the stars. But when they were ready, they launched their first ship toward their other dream, Room. And within weeks of the launching, their sun's crystal sphere shattered. For two weeks, we double-checked the translations. We triple-checked. For millennia, we had been searching for a way to destroy these deadly barriers around good stars, trying to duplicate on purpose what Seeker had accomplished by accident. And now we had the answer. The Natural, like us, had managed to destroy one and only one crystal sphere, their own. And the pattern was exactly the same, down to the comet war that subsequently almost wrecked their high civilization. The conclusion was obvious. The death barriers were destructible, but only from the inside. 
And just when that idea was starting to sink in, the archaeologists dug up the obelisk. Our top linguist, Garcia Cardenas, had a flair for the dramatic. When Alice and I visited him in his encampment at the base of the newly excavated monument, he insisted on putting off all discussion of his discovery until the next day. He and his partners instead prepared a special meal for us and raised their glasses to toast Alice. She stood and accepted their accolades with dry wit and then sat down to continue nursing our baby. Old habits break hard and only a few of the women had managed yet to break centuries of biofeedback, conditioning not to breed. Alice was among the first to reactivate her ovaries and bring a child to our new world. It wasn't that I was jealous. After all, I basked in the only slightly less glory of fatherhood. But I was getting impatient with all of this ballyhoo. Except for old Moisha Bach, I was perhaps the oldest human here old enough to remember when people had children as a matter of course, and therefore made time for other matters when something important was up. Finally, when the celebration had wound down, Garcia Cardenas nodded to me and led me out the back flap of the tent. We followed a dim path down the sloping trail to the digs. By the light of the ring of bright small bodies, the natural had left permanently in place over the equatorial sky of Quest. We finally arrived at a wall of bright alloy that towered high above our heads. It was made of a material our techs had barely begun to analyze, and was nearly impervious to the effects of time. On it were transcribed hard patterns bearing the tale of the last days of the natural. A lot of that story we knew from other records, but the end itself was still a mystery and no small cause of nervousness. Had it been some terrible plague? Did the intelligent machines, on which both their civilization and ours relied, rebel and slaughter their masters? Did their sophisticated bioengineering technology get out of control? What we did know was that the natural had suffered. Like humans, they had gone out and found the universe closed to them. Both of their great dreams of good places to spread settle, and of other minds to meet, had been shattered like the death sphere around their own star. Like humans, they spent quite a long time not entirely sane. In the darkness within the dig, Cardenas had promised I would find the answers. As Cardenas prepared his instruments, I listened to the sounds of the surrounding forest jungle. Life abounded on this world. There were lovely, complicated creatures, some clearly natural and some just as clearly the result of clever biosculpting. In their creatures, in their art and architecture, in the very reasons they had almost despaired, I felt a powerful closeness to the natural. I would have liked them, I imagined. I was glad to take this world for humanity, for it might mean salvation for my species. Still... I regretted that the other race was gone. Cardenas motioned me over to the Hollis tank he had set up at the base of the obelisk. As we put our hands into the blackness, a light appeared on the face of the monolith. Where the light traveled, we would touch and feel the passion of those final days of the natural. I stroked the fine-tuned, soft, resonant surface. Cardenas led me, and I felt the ending time as the natural meant it to be felt. 
Like us, the Natural had passed through a long period of bitterness, even longer than we had endured until now. To them, indeed, it seemed as if the universe was a great, sick joke. Life was found everywhere among the stars. But intelligence arose only slowly and rarely, with many false starts. Where it did occur, it was often a form that did not happen to covet space or the stars. But if the crystal spheres had not existed, the rare sites where star-faring developed would spread outward. Species like us would expand and eventually make contact with each other, instead of searching forever among sand grains. An elder race might arrive where another was just getting started and help it over some of its crises, if the crystal spheres had not existed. But that was not to be. Starfarers could not spread because crystal spheres could only be broken from the inside. What a cruel universe it was, or so the Natural had thought. But they persevered, and after ages spent hunting for the miraculous good star, their far probes found five water worlds unprotected by death barriers. My touch hand trembled as I stroked the coordinates of these accessible planets. My throat caught at the magnitude of the gift that had been given us on this obelisk. No wonder Cadenas had made me wait. I too would linger when I showed it to Alice. But then I wondered, where had the Natural gone, and why? With six worlds, surely their morale would have lifted. This was a confusing place on the obelisk. Talk of black holes and of time. I touched the spot again and again while Cardenas watched my reactions, and finally I understood. Great egg, I cried. The revelation of what had happened made the discovery of the five good worlds pale into insignificance. Is that what the crystal spheres are for? I couldn't believe it. Cardenas smiled. Watch out for teleology, Joshua. It is true the barriers would seem to show the hand of a creator at work, but it might seem simply circumstance rather than some grand design. All that we know is this. Without the crystal spheres, we ourselves would not exist. Intelligence would be more rare than it already is, and the stars would be almost barren of life. We have cursed the crystal spheres for ten thousand years, Cardenas sighed. The Natural did so for far longer, until they at last understood. If the crystal spheres had not existed, I thought about it that night. I stared up at the shimmering pale light from the drifting shards through which the brighter stars still shone. If the crystal spheres had not existed, then there would come to each galaxy a first race of star-treaders, even if most intelligences were stay-at-homes. The coming of an aggressive colonizing species was inevitable, sooner or later. If the crystal spheres had not existed, the first such star-treaders would have gone out and taken all the worlds they found. They would have settled all the water worlds and civilized the small bodies around every single good star. Two centuries before we discovered our crystal sphere, we humans had already started wondering why this had never happened to Earth. Why, during the three billion years that Earth was choice real estate 
had no race like us come along and colonized it. We found out it was because of the death barrier surrounding Sol that kept our crude little ancestors safe from interference from the outside, that let our nursery world nurture us into being in peace and isolation. If the crystal spheres had not been, then the first star treaders would have filled the galaxy, perhaps the universe. It is what we would have done had the barriers not been there. The histories of those worlds would be forever changed, and there is no way to imagine the death of possibility that would have resulted. So the barriers protect worlds until they develop life capable of cracking the shells from within. But what was the point? What point was there in protecting some young thing, only that it would grow up into a bitter, cramped loneliness in adulthood? Imagine what it must have been like for the very first race of star-treaders. Never, were they patient as Job, would they find another good star to possess. Not until the egg cracked would they ever have neighbors to talk to. No doubt they despaired long before that. Now we, humanity, had been gifted of six beautiful worlds, and if we could not meet the Natural, we could at least read their books and come to know them. And from their careful records we could learn about the still earlier races which had emerged from each of the other five good worlds, each into a lonely universe. Perhaps in another billion years the universe will more closely resemble the science-fictional schemes of my grandfather's day. Maybe then commerce will plow the star lanes between busy, talky worlds. But we, like the Natural, came too early for that. We are cursed, if we hang around until that day, to be an elder race. I looked one more time toward the constellation we had named Phoenix whither the Natural had departed millions of years ago. I could not see the dark star where they had gone, but I knew exactly where it lay. They had left explicit instructions. I turned and entered the tent that I shared with Alice and our child, leaving the stars and shards behind me. Tomorrow would be a busy day. They had promised Alice we might begin building a house on a hillside not far from Old City. She muttered some dream talk and cuddled close as I slipped into bed beside her. The baby slept quietly in her cradle a few feet away. I held Alice and breathed slowly. But sleep came slowly. I kept thinking about what the Natural had given us. Correction, what they had lent us. We could use their six worlds on the condition we were kind to them. Those were the same conditions they had accepted when they took the four worlds long abandoned by the Lap Cleno, their predecessors, on the lonely star lanes, and the Lap Cleno had agreed to go on inheriting the three Thwuzun sons. So long as the urge to spread settle was primary in us, the worlds were ours, and any others we happened upon. But some day our priorities would change elbow room would no longer be our chief fixation. More and more the Natural had known, we would begin to think instead about loneliness. I knew they were right. Some day my great-to-the-nth descendants would find that they could no longer bear a universe without other voices in it. They would tire of these beautiful worlds and pack up the entire tribe 
to head for a dark star. There, within the event horizon of a great black hole, they would find the Natural, the Lap Cleno, and the Thuzun waiting in a cup of suspended time. I listened to the wind gentle flapping the tent and envied my great nth grandchildren. I at least would like to meet the other star treaders, so very much like us. Oh, we could wait around for a few billion years till that distant time when most of the shells have cracked and the universe bustles with activity, but by then we would have changed. By necessity, we would have become an elder race. But what species in its right mind would choose such a fate? Better by far to stay young until the universe finally becomes a fun enough place to enjoy. To wait for that day, the races that came before us sleep at the edge of their time-stretched black hole. Within, they wait to welcome us, and we shall sit out together the barren early years of the galaxies. I felt the last shreds of the old Great Depression dissipate as I contemplated the elegant solution of the Natural. For so long we have feared the universe a practical joker, and our places in it was to be victims, patsies. But now at last my dark thoughts shattered like an eggshell, like the walls of a crystal cage. I held my woman close. She sighed something said in dream thought. As sleep finally came, I felt better than I had in a thousand years. I felt so very, very young. Thank you very much, Jim, and thank you, David Brin, for giving us that story. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope it was all right. Don't forget, that work is copyright of David Brin, and we are under Creative Commons license, attribution 3.0, share and share alike. Drop us an email, tell us what you thought of that story. The next one will be coming out will be, I don't know, but it'll be in two weeks time so and I'll tell you probably on one of the Saturday shows this Saturday coming it is Elsprag de Camp that I'm going through and just to give you a hint up as well the one after that on the next Saturday will be time travel so it'll be a show on time travel so drop some donations if that would be very nice and I will catch you soon just like to say good night from me heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Your Sofa, a Vatican Research.